in the sun. As we have seen in our study, uh, twice Job has been assaulted by the accuser, that is Satan, who insists that Job only worships God and obeys God for the benefits that he receives. The first assault involved taking all of Job's possessions, his wealth, and taking all of his children, all ten children. And it came from all directions, as we saw. Job's response was, Naked I came from my father's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He acknowledged his suffering. He, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. He acknowledged that everything he had came from God. He came into the world naked, he would leave the same way. Everything he had came from God. As we've seen that when the temporary is taken away, only the permanent still remains. The second assault, also from the accuser, was against his person, against his body. He was covered with boils. We're not quite clear about all that he was afflicted with, but his wife told him, listen, just curse God and die. And he responded, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Then his three friends show up. They'd agreed to meet and then to go and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They identified with Job with the real possibility of disease and disgrace. Job, after all, is in the city dump. He's in the town dump where ashes, where dung, where the, all the trash goes. And he is covered with unimaginable sores. One could make a reasonable assumption that perhaps he is contagious. And yet they sit with him for seven days and seven nights. It was suggested by someone after the sermon last week, that these men, having traveled long distances, probably were men of means. They probably had servants. They didn't travel alone, like we'd hop in the car and go see somebody. Um, and so if you can just imagine the servants standing around saying, what is the master doing? What is our boss doing sitting in the town dump with this man who's almost unrecognizable because of all that's happened to him? As I said, we're not sure what he had. We're told he had open sores. He's not recognizable. Maggots fed in the ulcers that he had. He could not sleep. He had nightmares. He was depressed. He had fever. And his skin was blackened and peeling. I would suggest in the same way that Satan attacked Job's wealth from four directions, from heaven and from earth as well, this is not simply one single disease, one single condition, but a multitude of conditions that Satan has put on him. But his friends sit with him, and they demonstrate the ministry of presence, they are present with him, and the sacrament of silence. But after seven days and seven nights, we hear this primal scream coming from Job. This is what we saw last week in chapter 3. I mentioned this last week, but Job is not sort of beginning the conversation. 
he's just screaming, he's just crying out. His friends then will jump in and say, this is what we think. But he wasn't trying to open a dialogue. At all. We shouldn't see chapter three as the beginning of the conversation. It starts a conversation, but I don't think that was Job's intent at all. In the first part of the chapter, it is a curse. In the second half is a lament. Job does not curse God. Satan had predicted he would, but Job does not. He does not curse himself or anyone else. He curses the day he was born, the day of his birth. And the structure, as we saw last week of his curse, follows the order of creation. I really misspoke last week, and I must correct it. I referred to it as anti-creation, which is how we define evil. It was not anti-creation, it's uncreation. Job wants God to uncreate that day, take it out of the calendar, because, because on that day he was born and that day had allowed the things that happened to him to exist. If he had never been born, those things could have never happened to him. The second half, as I said, is lament. And I immediately, and I mentioned last week, I'm thinking of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what we hear, in essence, from Job. The key to the whole book is found in this lament in verse number 25. What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. At the beginning of our worship, we sing, I will not fear. Usually we're thinking of things like loss of health, loss of job, perhaps. Um, and after all that Job has suffered, we might think that he's doing the same thing. You know, he's lost all his possessions. He's lost his 10 children. He's lost his health. He's in horrible shape. And one could argue that in some sense, he's lost his wife's support. I mean, she's like, you know, just curse God and die. But that's not what Job feared. What Job feared is that God is not who he says he is. Because in the midst of all of this, God has been silent. God has said nothing. Well, his friends did not speak for seven days and seven nights. But now that Job has spoken, they feel obligated to say something, to answer him, to correct him, to challenge him. There are three cycles of speeches. There are three friends, and each one sort of has a shot at Job three different times. Eliphaz is the first, then Bildad, then Zophar. By the time we get to the third cycle, Bildad doesn't have much to say. There are only five verses in chapter 25. Um, and Zophar has nothing to say at all. It could be that his friends were simply sputtering into silence. They're just like, it's a lost cause. You can't talk sense to this man. In the first cycle, the friends state their position, which is very, very similar. Eliphaz says that no human is righteous before God. And Bildad said God never perverts justice. He always does what is right. And Zophar says God certainly punishes every evildoer. Job's answers are usually longer than what his friends say to him. And we'll, we'll begin to notice a pattern that in his answering them, he may address them first, but then ultimately he is answering God. He's speaking to God about why these things have happened to him. All of the friends, and I think to a certain degree Job as well, 
they share a basic belief. It's found in chapter 4, verse number 8. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Damon. Isn't that what Paul told the Galatians? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Yes, but Paul was not speaking in terms of this life, in this world, because he goes on to say, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So Paul's not talking about sort of an instant karma within this existence, but rather of what we do in terms of the life that is to come. For Job and his friends, behind this proposition that you reap what you sow is a belief that the world is ordered, that it is a moral universe, that God is God and he is a good God and he does what is right, that virtue will be rewarded and the way of the wicked will perish. So when Job's friends see him in this condition and having been there for seven days and, and then they hear from him, they conclude he must have done something really, really bad that these things have happened, that he is suffering so. One could even make the case that he had a chance to repent after he lost all his possessions and his children, and he didn't, so now something worse has happened to him that is his physical person. Job, I think, shares their theological principle. He argues, however, he has done nothing wrong. Yes, a person reaps what they sow, but he has not sown anything that he should reap what has happened to him. The basis for the argument for each of these three friends is different. Eliphaz relies on experience. He's had spiritual experiences that give him insight. Bildad relies on tradition. Zophar on rigid dogma. What we find in the book of Job three well-meaning friends who are trying to help their friend. They're attending to Job and they're trying to help him. One writer has, put it, uh, put, has written this, the first rule of ministry to people who are depressed is that you will almost certainly get it wrong. With Job's friends, they do get it wrong, but not for this reason. They get it wrong because their theology, their belief system is deeply thawed, flawed, and we will see this as we go along. Eliphaz is the first to speak, and some have argued he speaks first because he's the oldest. He's the eldest among these friends and has sort of the position that, of respect that uh, he is to go first. Um, he speaks longer than the other friends do, and his arguments are much more articulate I mean, he is sort of the leader of these three friends. He uses uh, rhetorical devices, proverbs, uh, parables, analogies, wisdom sayings. Um, he's the smart guy in the group. And he is the one who begins. He says two things that we will see. First of all, we see the law of retribution in chapter 4 that the righteous prosper and the wicked, in fact, suffer hardship and face a premature death. 
case in point is Job. And in chapter 5, that God's compassion and his care is there to deliver his loved ones from suffering. But he begins out kindly, I think. If you look at chapter 4, the first six verses, he really speaks, I think, in a consoling way. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, so he's replying to Job's primal scream, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? He starts off, I think, with real deference. Um, He wants to know if, if Job, in fact, will be patient to listen to what his friends have to say. But in any case, if Job's impatient or patient, Eliphaz is like, I've got to say something. I must speak. In verses 3 and 4, he recalls Job's past, um, that he is a man of uprightness, someone who instructed many, someone who strengthened feeble hands, whose words have supported those who stumbled, who has strengthened faltering knees. Job never hesitated to help those who who were in need. But now that Job is in need, he is discouraged. I mean, why doesn't he say back to himself the things he said to people in the past when they were discouraged? He is dismayed. There's great inner agitation. I think there is a fear in Job that is close to panic. He had encouraged other people who fell under the burden that they were carrying, whether it be emotional or whatever, and now he himself is overwhelmed. Eliphaz, in the beginning, suggests that there are two things that Job should look to. First of all, his piety, his fear of God. This is the inner response. It should give him confidence. Yeah, I'm a good man. The second thing is um, his blameless ways. Externally, Job has lived, and it says in chapter 1, he was blameless in what he did. doesn't mean he was perfect, but he led a good life. So in Eliphaz's mind, his, Job's piety and his blameless ways should have prevented what we read in chapter 3. When Job says, uncreate the day I was born, Eliphaz says, listen, if you're a good man internally and externally, what's chapter 3 about? Why the primal screen? Now he begins. Verse number 7. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. That's the fundamental premise there. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Eliphaz wants Job to think a minute. Consider now... And what he wants him to consider is the certainty of the doctrine of retribution. Has an innocent person ever perished? And the expected answer is no. That's what Eliphaz is expecting. And were the upright ever destroyed? And again, the expected answer is no. Well, if that's the case and all these bad things have happened to Job, then apparently he's not innocent and he's not upright. Upright. 
As I said, verse number eight is the key to this, a fundamental natural law. One harvests what one sows. And this law is beyond dispute. If you plant uh, wheat, wheat will grow. You know, not, not something else, not tomatoes. But as we see in verse number nine, there is more. It's not simply cause and effect. God participates. God is, in fact, involved in this. He administers judgment and justice so that the sinner will receive, in fact, just recompense. Eliphaz looks to natural law, to nature, to support his case. Um, I think he gives what might have been a familiar proverb back then, but it's been lost to us now. But the implication is that a lion is ferocious until it gets old and then the teeth break, they begin to fall out, and suddenly this great lion it becomes quite feeble and cannot, he's powerless to catch prey, to kill it and to eat it. He may still roar, but that's all he can do. And Job, you can do the primal scream, yeah, but that's all you got. That's all you got. Now, one of the difficulties in going through Job is that Job's friends, in fact, do say things that are right. Eliphaz is right. It is a moral universe. Um, in Psalm 1, um, as the psalm opens, it's a call to make a choice between one who delights in the law of the Lord, whatever he does prospers, or, in fact, to be wicked and to do what you want, and then you become like the chaff that the wind blows away. Psalm 1 ends, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is a moral principle in the universe. There will be moral judgment. It matters how we live. Okay. On some level, we do, in fact, reap what we sow. So he is right, and yet on another level, he is completely and entirely wrong. Because he believes that this principle has to be worked the other way around. He does the reverse engineering. He starts with the consequence and then works back and says, oh, this bad thing happened, therefore this must be what you did earlier in your life. Everything that you reap must have been the result of what was sown. We know this is not true about Job. And on some level, we know it's true, period, that many innocent people, in fact, have been killed, have suffered. Eliphaz doesn't know, though, that Job is innocent in this. He doesn't know about the accuser and the conversation with God. What Eliphaz has done here is replaced his theology with logic. It's a logical response. It's a logical conclusion. If you reap what you sow and now look at you, you're in the city dump and you're covered with these sores, let's reverse engineer it, let's work this back. You must have done something really, really bad for this to happen to you. On some level though, this is a statement of faith. I mean, Eliphaz is saying there is right and wrong. It is a moral universe. Um, we believe that God is there. He is sovereign. He is the creator. He knows what is best for his people. We believe that God judges the world justly. But we must also confess that we do not always know what is best for us. And that we don't always understand what God is doing in the world. 
for Eliphaz and his companions. He began with theology, he ends with logic, and his living faith has suddenly become ossified. It's now um, calcified, it's now dead. It's now just pure logic. There isn't a vibrancy, there isn't a flexibility or fluidity to it. It's now just, it's boiled down to a theory of cause and effect. And we must beware of falling into the same trap. Blaise Pascal wrote um, centuries ago, reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. It is merely feeble if it does not go as far as to realize that. If natural things are beyond it, what are we to say about supernatural things? In other words, for Pascal, and this is before the Enlightenment, Reason is good. Reason can help us, okay? But reason also recognizes there are things it cannot understand, things beyond it. And if that's true in the natural world, how much more in the spiritual world? We live in an, or coming to the end of an age where people worship reason. But we're now entering, I would say, an age of madness that rejects reason. As God's people, we are to recognize that reason is not to be rejected, but it is not to be worshipped or put in place of our faith. Eliphaz turned living faith into cold logic. We might be in danger of doing the same thing. And yet Eliphaz does something interesting. He goes beyond mere logic or observation, because that's what verse number 8 is about, that he's observed this principle. But now he goes into an experience. He's had a vision. Look, if you would, at verses 12 through 21. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when sleep falls, deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? In verses 12 to 16, Eliphaz describes the coming of the vision. And then in verses 17 to 21, the content of the vision, what the voice said to him. Um, the description of the vision is somewhat spooky. His hair stood on end. You know, this hair, the hair on his body stood on end. A spirit glided over his face. Um, We can't discount Eliphaz simply because he said he had a vision, because in fact the Old Testament prophets did as well. Okay, so this doesn't disqualify or cause us to discount what he has to say. There is a difference though. Eliphaz doesn't know who's speaking to him. The prophets knew that God was speaking to them and they were commissioned by God to speak his truth to the people, his people. So the principle that this spirit says to him, if it is a spirit, 
not quite sure. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? This is not new information. This just simply bolsters Eliphaz's contention. Again, we won't discount this because, in fact, if someone had a vision, it would not be contrary to God's revelation. Um, But at this point, they don't have the Old Testament. As far as we know, they're not Jews, they're not Israelites. Um, But what, what, what he hears in his dream is not, in fact, something new. It's not contrary to what has been revealed in the past. But it reinforces his cold logic not his faith in God. Eliphaz argues that no one, no one, not even the angels, is pure in God's sight. No one is more pure than God. And if this is the case, what about human beings? And I love his description. Those who live in houses of clay, those whose foundations or origins are in the dust, From dust we came, to dust we will return. Those who can be crushed as easily as a moth. Those who can be broken to pieces. Yes, human beings are not pure in God's sight. One author has written about Eliphaz that he is a dangerous man because he speaks the truth at the wrong time and in the wrong spirit. He almost seems to want to rub the salt into Job's wounds rather than comfort him. And thus we have the expression, Job's comforters, those who claim, in fact, to be coming to comfort you, and in fact, they rub salt in your wounds. The first part of Eliphaz's speech deals with the shock of the disaster, okay? The second part, which we will see now, deals with the shock. It focuses on the shock of Job's outburst. Look, if you would, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Call, if you will, But who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even among the thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet a a man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I think Eliphaz here is trying to fish. He's fishing to understand Job's sudden outburst. Who is Job talking to? Is he talking to God? Is he talking to the angels? I mean, who in fact... And what did this come from? Is it because of resentment? Is that why Job has done this? The question is not said directly, but is he speaking to the angels, that somehow Job will speak to the angels, and then the angels then will, in fact, convey the message to God. Um, I think Eliphaz got this idea, or where he got is beyond me, but it seems to fit in with what he said in chapter 4, verse 18. If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, that, in fact, the angels are seen um, as, well, that Job might imagine that angels are conveying his, his primal scream to God. And Eliphaz is building a straw man. He's basically saying, no, no, no. God charges the angels with error too. Okay. 
I hope I make that clear. Job isn't speaking to anyone specifically, and certainly not to angels to convey his message. This is something Eliphaz has made up in his own mind. Eliphaz is the one who's having visions and having a spirit talk to him. Um, it may be that Eliphaz is setting the stage for verse number eight, which we'll see in a minute. That if I were you, I would talk to God and not to the angels. Is Job a fool? Is it resentment that caused this scream in chapter three? Is he envious? There are a number of words in the Old Testament to describe a fool or that are used for a fool. One is quick to lose his or her temper, is considered a fool. One who is constantly quarrelsome. Um, but Eliphaz chooses the word that denotes the person who has rejected the way of wisdom one who has no longer the fear of God. The choice of the word resentment, though, is, is quite interesting. It's used in Proverbs 21.19, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife or resentful wife. It implies discontent rather than genuine grievance. It is as though Eliphaz is saying to Job, you have no basis for what you said earlier. This primal screen... You've got no basis for doing that. Job is a fool as Eliphaz sees it. He doesn't say so, but he allows Job to draw his own conclusions. And he is particularly devastating in his comments what he says about a fool's children. As one writer put it, nothing hurts worse than to think we are responsible for our children's suffering. Parenthood is to say, let me suffer, but spare my children. Eliphaz knows that Job has lost his ten children, and yet he pours salt in the wound to say, it's your fault. Job, that's why your children were killed. It's your fault. By the way, it's not the only time he plays this card. In verse number 25, he does as well, that if Job, in fact, repents and gets right with God, um, you will know that your children will be many. In other words, you'll get more kids back. This is what you say to a man who has lost 10 children, someone who prayed for them, who sacrificed for them in case perhaps they had sinned against God. And now they simply become fodder for the argument that Eliphaz is trying to make. One writer has said, Eliphaz gets no sympathy from me. The more I read his first speech, the greater my rage. I tend to agree. This is no comforter. But Eliphaz isn't done. He isn't done yet. Okay. Um, in verses 6 and 7, particularly verse number 7, he argues that punishment or affliction it's not part of a natural process, okay? It is, in fact, the result of someone's sinful nature. That the misfortune is not a capricious act of nature. It, happen, it doesn't happen at random. There is this very specific cause for this. And this goes back to what he said earlier. It's, Job, you must have done something really, really bad that all of this has happened to you. Verse number seven may be familiar to you. As man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. 
um, I think what he's saying basically is um, we are in a sense born to create trouble in the same way that if you make a fire the sparks go up. It's the same thing. That's what we do. So what should Job do? Now we come to the answers. Verses 8 to 16. But if I, but if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. In verse number eight, there's a marked shift here. It starts with the word but. Okay, it's an adversative conjunction. Uh, Job, this is who you are, what you do, but this is what I would do. You're sitting there, I'm sitting here with you, but you scream, you say, uncreate the day I was born. This is what I would do. It's been argued that everything Eliphaz says revolves around his own authority. I think he made up the whole vision thing, but it's not for me to say. But now he tells Job, this is what you need to do. I want to get you back on the straight and narrow. Don't call out to the angels, cry out to God. That's what I would do if I were you. And in verses 9 to 16, he tells him why. And it's the transcendent wisdom of God. That God is God and we are not. That God takes care of the poor, those who have been afflicted. He takes care of them. He raises them up. Um, verse number 13 is actually quoted in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He catches the wise in their craftiness. One can only imagine what category Eliphaz puts his friend Job in. And then finally, the end of chapter 5, we have God as the disciplinarian, beginning at verse 17. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the, of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven no harm will befall you. In famine he will ransom you from death and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue and need, need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine and need not fear the beast of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children are many, or will be many, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. And then he concludes, verse 27, We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. Eliphaz brings something else in. Maybe God is correcting, he is disciplining Job. Uh, that God is doing sort of a tough love thing with Job, trying to get him to do what he's supposed to do. And Job should not reject this. 
And in fact, he says, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. And we would say that's, that's a pretty good principle. By the way, the word Almighty in uh, Hebrew is Shaddai. It, this is the first time it appears in Job. It will appear 30 more times in the book of Job. This is the prominent name that they use for God in the book of Job. It appears only 17 times outside the book of Job. So in the book of Job, God is God Almighty. He brings up the issue of discipline because it, he sees it as an intermediate step before retribution. In other words, God could like wipe you out, but before that he will discipline you, maybe in a harsh way, so that we don't go to the next step in which God will take your life. For Eliphaz, if you're suffering, it is God's rod of correction. It's because he loves you that he's doing these terrible things to you. I do not disagree that God, in fact, at times has disciplined his people. But Job has, or Eliphaz has missed the point here. In verse 18, we see two sides to God. He is one who wounds, but then he binds up. He disciplines, but then he, he, he binds people's wounds up. He, heal, he injures, and then he heals. He is personally there. He doesn't just sort of smack people and then leave them to their own devices. We find this elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 32. See now that I myself am he, God is speaking, there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. In verse 19, uh, verses 19 on, he lists seven calamities that God can deliver you out of. Famine, war, lash of the tongue, destruction, devastating hunger, wild beasts, and stones that make the ground unusable. Um, But it isn't just that Eliphaz is saying God will deliver you from these. What he is saying is there are benefits to being at peace with God. Job, obviously you and God are not on speaking terms. Something's wrong here. If you would get right with God, if you would repent of whatever horrible thing you've done, then you would have all of these benefits. And as I said at the end, he's like, you know, we've all examined this, you know, we've come to the conclusion, we've examined this, it is true, so now hear it and apply it to yourself. What makes Eliphaz and his friends so difficult is they say good things. Eliphaz has said some very important things that I think in today's world people don't want to hear. There's the reality of a moral universe. The universe is not neutral. God created the world. The sinful nature of human beings. Again, we'd like to think that we are born in innocence. Um, The need to call upon God. That God is transcendent. That God cares for his creatures. He delivers his people. And there are benefits to being at peace with God. But Eliphaz is saying all these things for the wrong reasons. Eliphaz sees what Job has said in chapter 3 as a threat to his belief system. Eliphaz is saying, this is what I believe, and Job, what you just did with the primal scream and all, it is a challenge to the way I see the world. So he has the audacity to assume the voice of God in this matter. Job, I've looked at this, we've looked at this, and this is a conclusion. You need to apply it to your life. 
He does so to defend a view of God that is small and an orthodoxy that is very narrow. And to do this, he must sacrifice Job's character. Job, we're friends. I love you, uh, but you are a rotten person because look at what's happened to you. He's willing to sacrifice his friend for the sake of his theology. And in offering advice, amazingly, Eliphaz takes the side of Satan. Did you catch that? Do you remember what Satan said to God? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? And then at the end, Eliphaz says, listen, get right with God and all these things will, you'll have kids again. You will be restored. In other words, the motivation to be right with God are for the benefits. Eliphaz fails to understand that Job is troubled by suffering because he is suffering for no reason at all. And in seeking to help his friend, he is trying to tempt Job to seek God for personal gain. Not because it's the right thing to do. Not because God is the creator of the universe. Not because we need to be reconciled to God. But for the personal benefits. And this is satanic. Literally. This is what Satan had said. Job worships you because of the benefits. And Eliphaz says, come back to God for the benefits. If Job follows Eliphaz's advice, he will fall into the trap that Satan has set. If Job is to find God, though, he must chart a much different course than the one that Eliphaz has set down. We are called, as Job was, to worship the true God because he is the true God. He is the creator. He made us. We are broken in need of redemption and reconciliation. We should seek him out as he sought us out that we might be reconciled to him, not for any benefit we might get from it. Unfortunately, I think, in my lifetime at least, it seems that the church has presented the Christian faith as accept this for the benefits you will receive. And in doing so, we are more, we're like Eliphaz and we are more satanic than we are Christian. You'd say, well, Damon, isn't it better to be a Christian than not? And I would say, define better for me. Define better. Is it better to be reconciled to God than not? Absolutely. Absolutely. To be a child of God rather than a child of darkness? Absolutely. But we are not to put our faith in God because we expect to have, as one person put it, a hassle-free life, a life without difficulties, a life of prosperity, a life without sickness. That's satanic. We worship God. We come to him because he is the true God. And as we read Eliphaz, there are some good things in there, but overall, the message is satanic. He's wrong. How do you answer such a person? 
Well, the Lord willing, we will see this next Sunday as Job answers his friend Eliphaz. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are human beings. We are creatures made in your image, but broken, fallen. And as such, our orientation is usually wrong. We tend to think about ourselves first and what, what we can get out of it. What benefits we might accrue. And indeed, we live in an age in which Sadly, your truth, your gospel has be, been presented in that way. As though to be reconciled to God were not the greatest gift possible. As though it were not the greatest benefit possible. To be redeemed from our sins, to be set free from the bondage of sin. To be called a child of God. And we want something more. We want a life without difficulties without health problems, without financial problems, without family problems, without emotional problems. We want it all. The reality is it's a fallen world. We're here for such a short time. And by your grace, we will spend eternity with you. We need to know that. For all the wrong things Eliphaz said and the wrong spirit in which he said them, we are grateful for the things he does point out that in this age we have forgotten that we live in a moral universe. There is right and wrong, and you are God. By your grace, help us to think on these things in the days to come. May your spirit and your grace be with us. May we have a sense that you are with us every step of the way. We pray for Tom and Anne that you would bring them back safely from out of town. For each one that you would watch over us in the coming days. Again, I thank you for the years here at Melrose, for your faithfulness and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.